Uh, good afternoon. I'm delighted uh, to be joined today by Peter Schiff. Uh, I followed Peter's career and uh, economic analysis for many years. Many of our viewers will be familiar with, uh, with him going back maybe to 2002 when he was correctly predicting uh, the decline of the dollar, maybe back to 2006 and seven, where he was being ex extensively mocked and laughed at on uh, primetime television, um, only to be proved entirely correct about subprime, the US economy in the United States housing market. Uh, or, or maybe since, as he's been commenting on, uh, on the, the, the plans of the Fed um, to do the right thing, and, um, and, it, and it never really happened. Now, uh, for those who are not familiar with Peter's um, background, we have a little clip. This is from an economics lecture given at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. Uh, I think this was the Henry Hazlitt a memorial lecture. Uh, and I point this out just to make everyone aware that this is not stand-up. Um, it later became a stand-up routine, <laughs> but this this was the original um, economics lecture describing the events uh, of 2008, 9, 10 uh, with uh, a great degree of accuracy. Look what Bernie Madoff was able to pull off, right? I mean, you think you think he could have done that without the SEC? giving them a stamp of approval, or without FINRA? I mean, there's no way that if we didn't have regulators, the private sector wouldn't have ferreted this guy out. There would have been a lot more due diligence if everybody didn't think the government was doing it for us. And of course, I said, you know, instead of putting Bernie Madoff in jail, we should just make him Secretary of the Treasury. <laughs> because he's got a lot of experience, exactly the kind that we need in running a Ponzi scheme. Because, you know, the Chinese just mentioned yesterday that they were getting a little concerned about all, about all the money they loaned us and that just maybe we won't pay them back. You know, I'm sure they're a lot more than just a little concerned because that's what they said publicly. Imagine what they're saying privately because they know we're not, we're not going to pay them back. We, we, of course we're not going to pay the Chinese back their money. It's impossible. We don't have, we can't, we can't possibly. And can you imagine, I mean, can you imagine if, President Obama, you know, given the, the following type of speech to, to the American citizens, to say, go you know, national televised address and say, you know, my fellow Americans, I've got a little news for you today. We're going to have to have a massive across-the-board tax increase on average working Americans. Any American that still has a job is going to have to pay much higher income taxes. And as a matter of fact, we're going to have to cut Social Security across the board. If you're getting a Social Security check, we're going to have to reduce it. And remember all my plans about more education and health care for everybody and you know, energy independence? We've got to put all those plans on hold because the Chinese need their money. <laughs> we, need, we, we borrowed a lot of money from the Chinese, and we're good for our debts. You know, they worked hard for that money and they loaned it to us and we're going to pay it back. Now that's going to require a big sacrifice on our part. Does anyone think that we're going to do that? What, are they kidding me? You know what we're going to tell the Chinese? We're going to say, you guys are predators, predatory lenders. 
we need a modification program. We need a cram down on this. You never should have lent us all this money. You know we can't pay it back. It's not our fault. I mean, I, I mean, that, I mean, the Chinese know this. I mean, the Chinese, they can't even vote in our elections. Why are we going to care what they think? We're, we're going to tax voters to pay non-voters? So the Chinese know they're in this box. I mean, the U.S. government, we're just, we don't pay our bills. We're like Bernie Madoff, right? People loan us money. How do we pay it back? We borrow more. Right? How did, if, if somebody came to Bernie Madoff a couple years ago and wanted their money, they got it. Why did they get it? Because they were able to take in new money. They found another sucker who didn't know it was a Ponzi scheme. Same thing the U.S. government does. Every time a bond matures, we just go sell another one. And every time we need to pay interest on the national debt, we go borrow that too. Well, it works until nobody wants to lend us any more money. Then we're going to have to default, just like, just like Bernie did. And there's only two ways we can default. We just legitimately don't pay or we print money. That's it. There's only two ways to repudiate your debt. There's no way we're going to pay the debt. So, uh, Peter, welcome. Um, how much has changed and how much has stayed the same since, what was that, 2012, something like that? Yeah, you know, nothing has changed. You know, we're having another debt ceiling debate. They want to raise the debt ceiling again. You know, the debt is now $32.5 or something like that. Um, and they're saying the same stuff that they said 10 years ago or 12 years ago. They're saying if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we're going to default. Again, that is an official admission of a Ponzi scheme which, of course, in my mind, is a violation of Ponzi 101. You know, when you're running a Ponzi scheme, you got to keep it quiet. You can't tell everybody. But we tell everybody. We're telling the Chinese and the Japanese or the Saudis or anybody else dumb enough to be holding on to U.S. Uh, treasuries that the only thing standing between us and default is the ability to sell more bonds. It, it, nobody is saying that if we can't borrow more money, we'll find a way to pay the bills, right? They're not saying we're going to raise taxes or we're going to cut spending. They're all saying if we can't borrow more money, well, then we're going to default on the money we've already borrowed. That is what the U.S. government is telling the world. And, you know, why the world continues to loan money, uh, you know, under those conditions, it's beyond me. But, you know, I do believe that America will raise the debt ceiling in perpetuity, right? I mean, we will borrow as much money as the world is dumb enough to lend us. The, the question is, when will the rest of the world, you know, invoke a lending ceiling, right? So it's not that how much we're willing to borrow, which is an unlimited amount. It's how much is the world willing to lend? When are they going to stop throwing good money after bad, because even if we don't default, we will inflate. And so when our creditors get repaid, they're not going to recover their purchasing power. They're going to be repaid in inflated dollars that have very little and potentially no value in the market as far as what, what you could buy. So this is this really interests me because we, we are going back to where we were 10 years ago, Except that the the, the the debt levels roughly doubled 
since then. I think it was around about 15 trillion back when you were making that speech. And it's, as you say, the 32 trillion now. At least that's the official line. That's not not, not counting the off-balance sheet stuff. Now, um, I, <clears throat> I'm looking at uh, Japan as the only example of, of a less well horse in the glue factory compared to the United States um, in terms of debt levels compared to the size of the economy. Now, they've got to the point where the central bank has basically cornered the market on, on Japanese government bonds. The JGBs have been bought by the central bank to maintain interest rates at zero, plus or minus 0.5%. Um, and they seem to be, at least for the moment, happy to do this. Is this how you see things going in America? Because, as you say, there, there comes a point where people will impose a, a lending ceiling. Um, so if they can't borrow money from abroad, if they can't borrow money from their own population, um, do they then just monetize their own debt? How do you see the next move by the Fed uh, playing out at this point? Well, first of all, just to talk a little bit about the Japanese situation and how that compares to the U.S., and Japan has got itself in a major problem. There's no question about that. Uh, the monetary policy of the Bank of Japan has been horrific for you know several decades, and and all of this started after the the bubble burst in the the 80s, the late 80s, the stock market bubble, the real estate bubble. The government just continued to interfere in the economy rather than to allow market forces to correct the imbalances that. Uh, were built up during that bubble, and rather than allow the Japanese yen to appreciate more, which it should have done, uh, they they tried to uh, you know keep the yen from rising and prop up companies that that should have failed. And their efforts uh, led to this lost decade or decades in Japan. And now the Bank of Japan has printed all this money. They own all these JGBs. You've got enormous debt. Uh, it's a huge problem. It's not going to end well. But the difference between Japan and the United States is Japan is still a creditor nation. Japan, you know, I think they still run trade surpluses. Uh, they're certainly, a, you know, a creditor, you know, a wealthy creditor nation. Uh, their economy, you know, is viable. And the yen is not the reserve currency or even a reserve currency, really. And the Japanese owe their debts to the Japanese. You know, you don't have a lot of foreigners that own Japanese government bonds. It's either uh, Japanese citizens, corporations, or the Bank of Japan, right? There, there's not a lot of Japanese bonds that are owned outside of Japan. Um, the United States is, I think, in a more vulnerable position given the enormity of our current account and trade deficits, the fact that we are the world's biggest debtor nation, and the fact that so many of our treasuries are held abroad. Um, and, and also our economy is, is built on this foundation of you know, consumption where we have to import what we consume. And we can only do that to the extent that we can continue to borrow more money to pay for it. So we're, I think, a lot more vulnerable, even though the Japanese on paper, it looks worse. If you just look at the debt to GDP, 
but also in the United States. It's not just the federal government. A lot of people look at federal debt and they forget about all the, the states and municipalities. And we have a lot of debt that American taxpayers are on the hook for, not just the federal government. You know, so it's a lot more than that. So when you add all the government debt, you know, it's still not as big as Japan, but it's a lot bigger than, you know, the 120 percent of GDP that I think we're at now. I think we're closer to 150 or 140 percent of, of GDP in debt. But also, the United States has a lot more unfunded liabilities than Japan. So, you know, you look at the obligations that the U.S. government has to pay Social Security benefits, to pay Medicare, Obamacare, uh, government pensions, guaranteed mortgages, guaranteed uh, student loans, bank accounts, um, pension funds. I mean, the U.S. government is on the hook for, you know, trillions. It's like a huge number, a hundred trillion. I forget what the total number is. So if you look at the complete financial picture of the United States, I think it's bleaker than it is in Japan. Let's um, start from that point. You, you, you mentioned all these liabilities. Now, this is, this is very interesting from a European point of view. We've got currently the, 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 the French are having riots. Now, the French always have riots because it's, it's, it's what they do, the French. Um, today's reason for having riots, though, is because the pension age has been put up to, I think it was 64 from 62 or something like that. It's quite modest by British standards, but the state pension age was corrected back upwards a little bit, been brought down uh, because, you know, everyone's going to retire early and the, the, everyone's basically bought the narrative that you can be in state-funded state full-time education until you're 25, um, work for a few years and then be in state-funded retirement for 30, 40 years after that. And it's okay, that, 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 that economy will work fine. Um, so they're objecting uh, to a, a, a very modest correction. In the UK, pension ages, state pension ages have been moved back by quite a number of years because it's totally unaffordable. And uh, when the state pension was brought in, in Britain, almost nobody collected it. Or if they collected it, they only collected it for a few years and then they died. But uh, that's, not long, that's no longer the case. Uh, life expectancy has gone up and the pension is a huge and unaffordable um, burden on the, the, the broader society. Is, is that side of things, the whole uh, intergenerational responsibility, who carries the weight for the older generation, is that playing in America? Is that starting to come home to roost in America? Is that part of the political well, discourse there? Well, it will. I mean, right now it's you know sacrosanct to even talk about cutting Social Security. Uh, nobody wants to do it. Uh, but it is an intergenerational Ponzi scheme. It, it was not designed that way, or at least it was not initially sold to the public that way. It was sold as insurance. People were supposed to pay in to a, a pension system and then collect from the pension. But governments never run pensions the way a private company does. You know, private pensions are viable because what they do is they take money in from workers and then they invest it and the investments generate returns. And then the uh, people who are going to collect the pension are going to collect their own money back. You know, the returns that were generated from years of prudent investment 
that's what they're going to get back. So they're not dependent on anybody else. But what Social Security is and what all government pension plans are, you know, anybody that works for the government who's collecting a pension, none of the money is invested in anything. It's just a liability of some future taxpayer. But the problem is the future taxpayers can't afford to pay the pensions of retired government workers, yet continue to pay the salaries of the current government workers. You know, you have too many people trying to take out of the pot and you don't have enough people that have the wherewithal to put in. And so eventually the politicians are forced to tell the truth to uh, employees or retired employees. We can't give you what we promised you because it was a lie to begin with. We, we, we don't have the resources. Uh, you know, we just did that because, you know, you voted for us or whatever. Uh, and of course, when the public hears this, they, you know, they're, they're pissed off because they think they paid into something. They think, they think they're entitled to this. They, they worked for it. They think they did, but they were conned by the government. And there's nothing they can do because the governments don't have the money. I mean, a lot of people think that governments have money. They have no money. Some governments have a printing press, but that doesn't matter because when you print money, you don't print purchasing power. All you do is redistribute the purchasing power that's created by the private sector. The, the, the limiting or constraining factor is the production of goods and services. The government doesn't produce goods and services. It consumes them. It is the private sector that uh, creates everything. And, and, and so, yes, I mean, people are upset. People are going to riot when they find out that they're not going to get what they were promised. But the, the fault is in the system. It's in the governments that made these promises. And to a lesser extent, the, the public for believing uh, the lies that were told to them by the politicians. Let's um, dive a little bit into the, the position of uh, of the central bank in all of this uh, as as well, because we've we've got central bank policy. To, to give you an example, in the UK, um, like everywhere else, we had zero interest rate policy. So the, the interest rates were screwed to the floor, and we were told it's fine. We don't need to have a real economy. We don't actually have to work for a whole year during COVID. Uh, we'll just print the money. She'll be fine. Don't you worry your pretty head about where the money comes from. The government will provide, right? This uh, and we had the the sight of um, of of government ministers going on daily on television, uh, telling people to stay indoors, telling people not to work, telling people not to go to work, telling people that to go to work was literally going to kill Granny. And uh, don't worry because. The great beneficent government is going to hand out lots of free cash and everything will be fine. And it didn't go well. And the minute they tried to do anything else, anything other than free cash, uh, the first thing that happened was there was a huge there was a huge crisis actually in private pensions because how in a zero interest rate environment do private pensions get a return? Well, they've been doing some strange leveraged scheme with UK gilts, UK government debt. And when the underlying value of the UK government debt went down, the interest rate went up, um, all of the private pensions suddenly looked like they were going to become uh, bankrupt. And they, there was a huge reversal and the, the central bank uh, did a pivot. It went from 
quantitative tightening very, very briefly for a few moments <laughs> to more quantitative easing, more money printing. Um, so that's what happened here. Um, in America, there's a lot of talk about will the, will the Fed pivot? Will they go from tightening to easing again? Or when will they do so? Um, and the market doesn't seem to believe what the Fed is saying about how rough and tough and tight and prudent and fiscally responsible they're going to be. Um, yeah, well... So what's, what's your analysis of, of, of that position? Well, first of all, all these major central banks, Bank of England, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, the Federal Reserve, they all made the same mistake, right? That's why we're all experiencing uh, higher inflation. Uh, although we experienced the higher inflation for a decade before it showed up in consumer prices because the inflation, by definition, is the expansion of the money supply. And that's exactly what all these central banks were doing, uh, both before and, and, and during COVID. They were expanding money supply. Uh, they were uh, artificially suppressing interest rates by creating money and then using that money to buy government debt. And it was the buying of that debt that helped to keep interest rates low, but they had to inflate the money supply in order to finance those asset purchases. And that did incredible damage to the structure of the global economy. There were winners and losers, as you mentioned, you know, pension funds or insurance companies had to figure out how to get a return in a low rate environment. They ended up gambling on stocks and they're going to end up losing a lot of money and that's going to end up causing insurance prices and things to really skyrocket because, you know, they're going to have to make up those losses. But the reason that we're now seeing these big increases in consumer prices, this is the delayed effect of the inflation that the central banks have been creating for better than a decade. And in fact, the central banks told us that the purpose of their policy was to create inflation. All these central bankers said the problem was inflation is too low. We don't have enough inflation. Our target is 2% and we're at one and a half. This is terrible. We need to get the one and a half percent inflation rate up to two. And so we're gonna have 0% interest rates or negative interest rates. We're gonna do all these quantitative easing because we need more inflation, which was a lie to begin with. We don't need more inflation. One and a half percent inflation is not bad and we need two. It, one and a half is better than two. And one is better than one and a half. I mean, the lower, the better when it comes to inflation. It's not like you need more. That was just a pretense to prop up governments so that they can keep on spending money they didn't have and the prop up asset bubbles. But now the consequences right, have come back. The chickens have come home to roost and we're gonna have to deal with inflation at high levels, maybe double digit, for probably the rest of this decade and probably more into the future, right? So the, the years of sub 2% inflation are long gone. We're not gonna see that again, uh, you know, in, in, in the foreseeable future, right? Uh, central banks and governments just haven't come to terms with that yet. You know, they think the rate hikes that they are gonna do it. They're not gonna do it. They're, these rate hikes are too little, too late to reverse the damage that has already been done. And of course, the, the, the way higher interest rates would help you know, put out the inflation fire is not by putting people out of work. I mean, a lot of people think that the goal of a tightening is to create unemployment and that higher unemployment is gonna reduce inflation. 
That's nonsense. We don't want people to lose their jobs. In fact, as people lose their jobs and they become less productive and then they get government unemployment benefits, that actually is inflationary because it leads to larger deficits that get financed. And also it leads to less production. I mean, you mentioned during COVID, we were sending everybody paychecks, money, the, the, the governments were sending people money, but they weren't working. It, so there's a big difference between earning money and getting it from the government. Because if you earn money, you did something productive to earn it. If you just got a check from the government, you did nothing productive. So we weren't producing, so supply went down, yet everybody kept demanding because the government was printing money. So that was a recipe for massive inflation, which we've just begun to ex experience. But what the Fed has to do with rate hikes is not cause people to lose their jobs. No, we don't want that. We want the people to keep working. That's important. What they have to do is stop spending. They have to start saving. That's the goal is less consumption and more savings and investment. That's how you uh, put a lid on prices. But that's not happening. If you look in the United States, credit card debt is now at an all-time record high. Savings are at a record low. Higher interest rates have done nothing to alter spending or savings patterns. And so it's going to do nothing to restrain inflation. Meanwhile, another key ingredient to fighting inflation, and that's not just in the United States, but in Great Britain, in Europe, is governments need to cut spending. They need to send people less money to spend, right? Because it's a demand problem. We're printing too much money, so people are spending. So governments need to cut back on their spending, and no governments are doing that. I mean, governments are continuing to spend and they think that the central banks are going to fight inflation by raising interest rates from zero to 2% or 3% or 4%. That's not even going to come close to doing it, especially when inflation is 8%, 9%, 10%. If your rates are 3 4%, you're still negative. You're still paying people to go into debt. You're encouraging more debt and consumption when you hold the interest rate below the inflation rate. We need interest rates that are higher than the inflation rate. The problem is we can't afford it. We now have so much debt, thanks to the central banks keeping rates so low for so long, that it's now impossible to fight inflation without completely imploding the economies and creating a financial crisis that was much worse than the one we had in 2008. Yeah, just to um, emphasize the figures on, uh, on debt, we've got the uh, St. Louis Fed have published figures and uh, from 2020, during the lockdown, 2021, uh, the, the savings rate suddenly spiked up to 33%, and it has now fallen, the United States saving rate has fallen to 3%, uh, whereas the borrowing rate uh, slumped down to 6% and has now hit 34%. So the borrowing is going absolutely stratospheric. It's going through the roof. And uh, as you say, saving investment we're not seeing. Now, there's a, is an, a, an element of this that um, I, I've long wondered as, as to whether it's something new. I'd like to get your opinion on this. Um, historically, we've had boom and bust cycles caused by um, central banks setting interest rates too low, overstimulating the economy, uh, generating a false boom which then drives up inflation. It reveals that the, the entrepreneurial plans that were made can't be, can't be successfully completed 
there's a, a, a collection of errors. There's a lot of companies go bust. There's a lot of devalued capital. There's a bust. That corrects the problem, and off we go again. Um, but the, such is the power of the central banks now. I wonder whether actually we're seeing some some other sort of mechanism where the central banks seem to be so powerful, so much in control of the commercial banks, and and so much uh, and so central to how the economy apparently um, progresses that maybe we've gone to something else. It's a it's a central bank cycle as much as it's a as, as much as it's a, a, a business cycle now. Um, and then, then I look at the central banks and it's a very strange thing that you see because they have units of liability, which is in the case of the Fed, the dollar. And they're not going to uh, eliminate a problem by producing more units of liability. Their assets are you, mostly US government debt, in the case of the Fed. But their own policy now is devaluing the, the, that asset. So as interest rates go up, the asset that's underpinning the, the Fed, that's underpinning the dollar, it's, it's going down. It's losing um, mm -hmm. huge yeah. amounts. And so we've got a, situ we've got a situation where in, in the UK, the Bank of England um, uh, basically had that loss underwritten by the Treasury. And the Treasury now owes the Bank of England 200, uh, get me the right, is it 200 billion? 200 million. Must be, two, must be billion. Um, uh, sterling to, to, to make good that loss. And apparently somehow, I don't know where the money comes from, the UK taxpayers kind of on the on the on the hook for this uh, are you seeing this a similar thing in the united states yeah well first of all you know the Fed is losing money just because of their interest it has the banks now on their deposits is lower than is ex, ex, what they're collecting assets right and so what they have banks who are parking cash at at the fed they're they're on their assets losing money on like on an operating base right now they're losing money but for years making money they were taking their profits and sending them to us government because they, they they're only able to keep a certain amount of their profits and then the rest they, they pay it's like a hundred percent tax money to the government and so the government had that extra money and without that money the huge budget deficits that we were running would have been even bigger right but now the situation has shifted. And as far as the eye can see, the Fed is going to be losing money. I think in the last quarter, it lost over $100 billion. And that money is then, or the bill for that is then sent to the U.S. government. The U.S. government has to pay the Fed to cover those losses. And, and where does it get the money? We already have massive deficits, so the deficits are going to get bigger. But where it's really going to kick in the high gear, where the Fed is going to lose trillions, is through quantitative tightening. Because if it actually tries to shrink down its balance sheet, it has to sell long-term treasuries before they mature. It can't just wait until they mature because the maturity dates are too long. Other ones, they could allow to run off. There's no loss there. But when they have to start selling 
like 10-year treasuries or 30-year treasuries, which they own, and they have to take a huge loss. A 30-year treasury, let's say it's yielding uh, 2%, and the market eventually is 8%, 10%, wherever it's going to be. Now they got to sell. They got to take a huge, huge Again, the U.S. government has the right reserve to check or send the money. Where are they going to get? So this is a huge problem uh, for, for the Fed. And, of course, it's just one of a number of problems because if the Fed continues raising rates, and, in fact, even if they just stop raising rates here and just left them where they are, you know, that's still too much, you know, uh, for all the uh, debtors to bear. And as a lot of the lower yielding debt matures, because that takes some time, right? Somebody borrowed money at a really low rate, and the fact that rates went up doesn't affect them until they have to refinance that debt. And so you have to give it some time. But the higher rates are going to be very problematic as debt matures. And now the borrowers need to find a, 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 another source because a lot of the people who borrowed money, say you borrowed money for two years, three years, five years, they can't pay it back. The plan is, well, when the note matures, we'll, we'll borrow some more, we'll refinance, right? Well, when the rates are a lot higher, you, you can't do it. And so there, there is a financial crisis coming just based on where rates are now. In fact, even the U.S. government at, at 5% rates right now, as the national debt matures and has to be rolled over, the U.S. government can't even afford the current rate of interest. Uh, so we have a huge debt crisis that's, that's waiting. And, and what you said about the business cycle is true. And the problem is now that not only do the central banks you know, create the artificial booms by keeping rates too low, but then when they bust, they make the mistake of intervening by moving rates even lower and providing even more stimulus because they're never willing to allow the, 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 the cleansing process to complete because there's too much political pressure on the central banks to stimulate, to cut the recession short, even though a deeper recession is necessary to restore a healthy balance in the economy, that the central banks never sit by and let that happen. So instead of allowing the markets to create a solid foundation upon which a real recovery can be built, the central bank intervenes. And so we get a phony foundation, you know, and then whatever is built on that is going to collapse eventually, which it does. And, and, and we keep going from bigger booms to bigger busts. And at some point, it's going to lead to a complete collapse of the currency. I mean, that's the only way it ends up is you destroy your currency because that's the, uh, the, the limiting factor. That's what stops them from doing it indefinitely is that eventually you have runaway inflation and you kill the currency. And we may already be in the beginning of that final stage. Yes. Yeah, so, so this is where we get to the, the question of um, will, the, will the Fed pivot? Uh, and, I, and I think the Bank of England example is quite uh, informative here because it wasn't uh, it wasn't a problem in High Street. It wasn't a problem for the ordinary working man. It wasn't a problem in manufacturing. It wasn't any of these things. What happened was there was a problem in the financial sector, and there wasn't even 
a moment's hesitation. There wasn't even a question. Do we intervene? Does the bank intervene? Um, Reinstigate more quantitative easing, drive down the cost of government debt, buy a lot more government debt, and patch over the problem. And it did it instantly. And it did it without, uh, um, without a moment's hesitation. So I think that's what we're likely to see um, elsewhere, United States, for example, that it, it will the tightening will go on until there's a financial crack, a, a, a problem yeah. in, in, some, in some aspect of the financial world that's going to see maybe a major commercial bank fail or, or, um, or um, I mean, obviously do it to bail out the government, but the, the, certainly if, if there was going to be a major uh, banking crisis or something like that, you would see the Fed swing into action, right? They would announce once again that they've got lots of ammunition, they're not out of ammunition yet, and there's more ways they can bomb the economy. And they would go ahead and they would do so. They would they would generate a lot of um, um, a lot of money, um, apparently from nowhere, and uh, buy a lot of government debt, drive drive down interest rates, and claim to be the saviors. And of course, yeah. once that final pivot happens, you know whether there's any way back at what point does it does it tip over into into runaway inflation into hyperinflation well well nobody knows because you never see it coming but you know we we could be quite close when the bank of england made that mistake i i, ta I spoke about it at length and i said that it was you know pretty much a blueprint for what the fed would ultimately do that it was a pivot um and that the Fed will do the same thing when it is confronted with similar circumstances. Because I think that the Fed is willing to fight inflation as long as it doesn't create enough collateral damage, right? So as long as the economy looks okay, the unemployment rate looks low, the markets are okay, uh, you know, there's no major problem, they'll, they'll continue to, you know, with the pretense that they'll do whatever it takes. But the minute doing whatever it takes actually has some adverse consequences, then I think they, they will back off. Uh, but the question is, can they do that again without uh, an immediate consequence? Because I think that the ability of the central banks to get away with QE in the past and 0% and interest rates was the pretense of inadequate inflation. Inflation was too low. So that gave them uh, the cover to create more inflation to try to stimulate the economy. But in an era where inflation is already too high, where high inflation is a current problem, and then the Fed, central bank comes in and says, oh, we're going to create more inflation. Well, that's compounding a problem that already exists. And that could be the breaking point. And, and I think already in the UK, right, the, Brit, Britain is going to suffer from this pivot because inflation is not going away, right? It's going to be there year after year after year. Prices are just going to keep going higher and higher and higher. And that means uh, the living standards are going to keep going lower because people are not going to have incomes rise nearly as much as the cost of living. And that's just a trade-off that has been made. And it's a tax that the British have you know, accepted, whether they realize it or not. That is the trade-off. You don't get something for free. So we didn't have that crisis. But at what cost? Well, everybody's going to pay for it with a higher cost of living and a lower standard of living.
And it was the, the political background to that was quite interesting as well, because we had uh, a, a new uh, government come in and they said, well, we're going to we're going to have a low tax. Uh, we're going to have a low tax economy. We're going to have um, uh, rewards for entrepreneurs. We're going to have an encouragement to take risks, to to go out there and build businesses. But what they didn't say, and they assumed it would be accepted because of COVID, because it had been in the previous year. What they didn't say is, well, we're going to, we're, we're going to um, cut taxes by cutting expenditure. Uh, we're going to do less and we're going to shrink the government. Didn't say any of that. So government was going to still do everything um, that it had been doing, and probably a little bit more. Um, but we weren't going to we weren't going to fund it from taxes as much because, well, partly laugh or curve, but partly we were we're just going to borrow because we've spent the last yeah. two years borrowing and not actually had an economy, and it's been fine. And there wasn't a yeah. realization that that was insanity, and it was only accepted because yeah. everybody was insane at the same yeah, time, soon... and and. And if you look, if you're in, if you, everyone's insane, no one's insane because it's a relative measure. You know, right? sanity has to have some sort of basis in in reality as well. There has to be somebody who's sane to show up the crazy. And and for two years we hadn't had anybody sane in government at all. And that 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 really caught out the Liz Trust government. That the fact that there was some degree of limit on what they could do, what they could borrow, what they could create out of thin air. There's like, well, why do these rules suddenly apply to us? And it's it's not that they were, um, they were they were caught out by just accepting the crazy that they'd been in for the previous two years. When Liz Truss was initially uh, elected and 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 she made that proposal, I immediately called called it out and, and said, first of all, she's supposed to be conservative government. I mean, so she's going to run up these huge deficits. There's nothing conservative about that. But at the time she did it, inflation was already elevated. And I think they said this is going to help bring down inflation because it's going to lead to more production. And well, but, you know, the immediate impact was going to be bigger deficits. And I said, this is an inflationary policy. You can't, you know, say you're going to you're going to fight inflation by pouring gasoline on the fire. And what I said that she needed to do, if she wanted to cut taxes, she needed to pair it with spending cuts. You know, and that would have been okay if you're going to say, hey, we're going to cut government spending. And because we're going to cut spending, we don't need as much tax revenue. And so we can lower taxes. You can't say we're not going to cut any spending because then where's the government going to get the money? If it's not going to collect it in taxes, how is it going to pay for the programs? Well, the only way to pay for it is to create more inflation. That was the problem. And so the bond market uh, reacted. Uh, the pound, right, the pound hit a new all-time record low. Yields were spiking. And, and so the market did its job and, 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 and punished the government for that irresponsible action. And then the government quickly responded by being even more irresponsible by just, you know, going back to quantitative easing. Now, I think they, they did call off the, the tax cuts, right? Or did any of those tax cuts happen? They called off everything. In fact, they called off Liz Truss yeah, ultimately. Yeah. But, it, but the, tax, yeah, yeah, well, the, she... the tax cuts, the, the tax cuts was an interesting sequence because the tax cut, the tax cuts 
um, got cancelled in the or in the in the reverse order from the the, the direction they should have been cancelled in. The one tax cut that you could have actually justified on the basis that we'll actually put revenue up, not down, was the first one to get cancelled. Right? And that was simply a political move. It was nothing else. That was probably targeted at business, and they said that would have benefited the rich. Yeah, I mean, I, but, uh, I, I speak to you from Scotland, where we've got higher taxes than the rest of the UK, and they put this this higher rate uh, on and, and said, well, we're going, to, we're going to raise more money, and then they needed to get a bailout from the rest of the UK because they raised less money because the Laffer curve is real. Um, I'd like to swing back to the Fed because I, I I find the position of the Fed fascinating in that it, it's it's like watching a horrible accident unravel in very slow motion. And you can't quite look away. Um, and I'm trying to understand it. Uh, let me run past you one of the ways I'm trying to understand it and tell me if you think I'm, I'm, I'm right in this. The Fed's got liabilities that are called dollars. The Fed's got assets, which are largely United States government debt and other forms of debt, for example, uh, mortgage bonds, mortgage-backed securities, this sort of thing. Um, and that debt is ultimately backed by the ability to pay by the person who's borrowed the money. As the ability to pay goes down, the asset value goes down, ultimately then the value of the dollar must go down. So, although it's not happening this way yet, we have to, I would have thought, see a, a decline in the, in the value of the dollar um, and you know, balanced by inflating numbers of dollars. And the end is inflationary because there isn't another way out. And and their, their attempt to find another way out, right, and their pretense that they're going to sort of find a balance point between higher interest rates actually detonating something in the economy. Uh, so it won't quite do that, but it will do just enough to bring inflation down and it'll be a soft landing. This, this just doesn't seem credible to me. And this is, again... This takes us back to one of your jokes that got your stand-up career uh, 10 years ago when you talked about, um, it, you know, the the Fed having to pull off a good trick. And you said it's the, the trick they're having to pull off is not the one where you pull the, the, the tablecloth out from underneath the dishes and leave the dishes on the table, but one where the Fed has to pull the table out and leave both the, the, the cloth and the dishes suspended in midair. And it seems to be back there where... The, the only way out from the Fed looks to me to be impossible and that you get a steady march of inflation, almost irrespective of what they do at this stage. It's kind of a ready baked I, Well, I think the best case scenario they could hope for, I doubt they'll achieve it, is that we just have higher inflation indefinitely without it running away. So instead of being 2%, maybe it's 4 or 5% and we just have that. Uh, but they're not going to they're not going to admit that's their target. They're just not going to achieve the two percent. I mean, they'll they'll keep saying it's their target, but they're just not going to get there. Uh, but they won't officially give it up because that, you know, kind of lets the, the, the rabbit out of the hat if they if they if they come clean. I mean, the market should figure it out on their own, but I don't think they want to speed up the process 
uh, by officially informing people of the higher inflation, because that's going to result in immediate revaluation, lower of the dollar, uh, upward revaluation of gold and, and, and other, other assets. That would be inflation hedges. But you're right in that the dollar inevitably has to collapse. It just There's just no other way around it because the longer we go without a dollar collapse, the more vulnerable the dollar becomes and the worse the eventual collapse has to be because we continue to export dollars. We print them and we export them to cover our trade deficits, which you know, are now at all-time record highs. They've backed off a little bit, but we set record trade deficits after COVID, right? Record trade deficits. And, um, you know, we were importing over a trillion dollars a year worth of foreign goods. And so, you know, we pay for them by creating dollars. Now, as long as there's demand for those dollars to invest in financial assets in the United States. So if if our creditors want to recycle those trade surpluses into U.S. debt, you know, government bonds, corporate bonds, if they want to buy U.S. stocks or things like that, then it's sustainable. There's there's demand for dollars. But when our trading partners don't want our financial assets anymore because they, they don't think the returns are good and they can get better returns elsewhere, then the dollar has to collapse. Because we don't produce goods, you know, to, people don't want our stuff. If they wanted our stuff, we'd have a balanced trade. I mean, foreigners don't want our stuff because we don't make the stuff. Americans don't want it either because it's not there, right? We want the Chinese stuff or, all, you know, that's why we have these huge deficits. So it's only a matter of time. But right now, there still is this perception that the dollar is this safe haven. And so we're benefiting right now from all the problems all around the world and, and, and that, that causes everybody to buy dollars. Uh, and then we just take those dollars and you know we go deeper into debt and we exacerbate the problems that everybody is ignoring. And it's ironic because let's say you're in the UK and you're worried about the fiscal situation of the UK and you're worried about the pound. And so you buy some dollars and then you buy US treasuries and you're like, oh, I don't wanna be in gilts and <clears throat> I'm out of pounds. But you don't realize that you're jumping from the frying pan to the fire because the U.S. is in even worse shape than Britain. Not that Britain is in good shape. It's not. It's in horrible shape. It's just that the U.S. is in even worse shape. But nobody cares, right, because we're the, we're, we're the United States. You know, we'll, we'll never default. You know, we, we've got the dollars. We can print dollars, and they're always going to have value. So that's just where the market is now. But that will change. You know, just like at one point, people were lending Greece a lot of money, and then all of a sudden they were worried that the Greeks couldn't pay it back, and then there was a crisis. Or, you know, I'm living here in Puerto Rico. I mean, Puerto Rico was borrowing money for years and years. People kept lending until all of a sudden they didn't want to lend anymore because they realized that Puerto Rico was broke. And then, of course, once we couldn't borrow anymore, we defaulted. You know, and that's always what happens. It's never a problem until it's a crisis, and then then it's finally a problem. But the reality is, it's a problem long before it becomes a crisis. It's just that people don't recognize it. So we have a crisis in the making in the United States. The only question is when. Do you think the political background to this is such that uh, 
is such that there will be uh, an attempt to seek a solution via war. You know, war doesn't solve problems. It just makes them worse. But sometimes in the environment of a war, people uh, forget about their problems, or maybe they, you can rally up the public, uh, you know, through patriotism or something like that and, and get them, uh, you know, distracted from the other problems. But war does not solve anything. Certainly, if inflation is your problem, the last thing you want is war. Because, you know, wars are, are very inflationary in the way they're paid for, which is through printing money. But the problem with wars is that you then have to divert a lot of resources away from domestic production towards, you know, military production. You have to make bombs, right, instead of things that we can consume. You know, you make tanks instead of cars, you know like that. And so you have less production, but you have more money printing because, you know, you got to pay the soldiers, you got to pay for the war. And, and so that just makes the situation worse. I mean, we can't even afford peace, let alone war. Uh, but, you know, there's sometimes there is a tendency to get into a war as a distraction, right? Oh, oh, oh now, you know, we, 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 we got this war to deal with, but it's not going to, it's not going to yeah. solve the problem, you know, extra spending on a war. There are some people that think that the stimulus, you know, the Keynesians out there think that, oh, a war is good for the economy because the government has to spend more money. I mean, only someone like Paul Krugman with a Nobel Prize could think of something that dumb. <laughs> yeah, well, but Paul Krugman yeah. was quite happy to have a war against, against the space aliens, even though the space aliens don't exist, as a way of rescuing the economy because it's all about total spending, right? Um, the... Um, the tendency of states when they're up against the harsh realities of their own policies to look to um, export the problem to some other country by invading, um, by, um, by starting a war and using that as an excuse for capital controls, price and wage controls, things that, the, things that the, the society would never normally accept, but because they're busy waving the flag, you know, support our boys, all of that sort of uh, uh, idea comes to play. They, they might see that as a solution. I don't, you, I don't know if you see any, obviously this is against the background of, um, of the Ukraine, of, the, of America, despite its parlous financial position, generating huge amounts of capital to provide uh, equipment, uh, munitions to yeah. Ukraine. Yeah. We've got a situation government... where we've got a UK government minister telling us that, that not only are we basically already at war with Russia, we should embrace this, uh, we should build munitions factories on the Polish border and ship, the, ship arms even more rapidly into the Ukrainians. Um, on the assumption, presumably, that the Russians wouldn't do anything to interdict this, um, it's we, we, there's a lot of crazy on on the international front just now, and um, I suppose the question I'm 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 circling around is if there's a major sovereign debt crisis, if there's a major a major run on the dollar, if there's a major collapse of the American financial institutions, um, then 
would the American political world see um, aggressive intervention overseas as, um, as, as a Paul Krugman-esque solution? Well, you know, if, if the dollar crashes, I don't even know that we can afford to deploy the military because I don't know that we'd be able to, uh, you know, source the supplies, pay the soldiers. So, you know, if the dollar goes, our, our military might is going to go too. I mean, we, 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 you know, I mean, unless we're just going to launch nuclear missiles, I mean, which all you have to do is push a button to do that. But as far as, you know, deploying uh, conventional forces around the world, I mean, we won't be able to do that uh, with, with a collapsed dollar. But, you know, uh, the U.S. And, and other countries, too, there's a long history of governments exploiting wars to, uh, you know, usurp power and, and, and to get the public to agree to surrender rights that they never would surrender in peacetime. Uh, but during wars, you can appeal to the patriotism and the emergency. And, you know, even just the war on terror in the United States, we got the, the horrible Patriot Act and all, all, all the legislation that went from that. But the American income tax uh, was first uh, it, it, you know, applied during the Civil War. We didn't have an income tax prior to the Civil War. And then after the Civil War, they ended the income tax and it didn't really uh, come back again uh, until much later, 1913. But then the withholding tax came in in 1942 during World War II. I mean, no Americans had income taxes taken out of their pay until the Second World War. That was the justification for doing it. The estate tax and the gift tax uh, were created during the First World War to pay for that. Of course, the war ended and we still have those taxes 100 years later. Uh, you know, so the government always takes advantage of wartime. I mean, I, you know, it, never let a crisis go to waste, especially a war. And, and so that's why I've said, you know, America has lost every war because even though we win most of the wars, you know, against our opponent, we lose our freedom. We end up freer after the war. In fact, look at what's going on right now in the Ukraine. I mean, look at all the rights that the Ukrainians have lost since this war started. I mean, it's not like Ukraine was a very free place before the war. In fact, if you look at the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom, the Ukraine was below Russia. And Russia was pretty low and the Ukraine was even lower. So they didn't have a lot of freedom in the Ukraine before the war. And now they have a lot less, you know. Well, just to um, to finish off, uh, Peter, uh, this is um, we, we, we've looked broadly at the nature of the economy, the debt levels, the problems in government, the problems in central banking, um, the problems in the money supply. Um, and despite the the, the the laughs at the start, this has been, you know, maybe a little grim. So um, as you look at this environment, and you're obviously uh, in, in asset capital management, um, you're, you've got to find places to invest uh, your resources and your clients' resources. Um, what sort of things are, are you finding that uh, that are... Uh, reliable and reasonably safe and you think are, are worth looking at? Yeah, look, I think there's a lot of opportunities if you know where to look. And since the vast majority of investors are wrong, then uh, assets are going to be mispriced. And so there's an opportunity there to make money in a market where assets are mispriced because eventually those mispricings will be corrected. 
And so what you want to do is buy the things that are too cheap and you want to sell the things that are too expensive. Right? One example was the, the short that we did with, with the subprime market, right? which you know, they called it the, the, the big short or whatever. But it was an obvious trade when I first learned about it back in like 2005, 2006, when I saw that these subprime mortgage markets were being priced actually at above par. People were pricing them. I had a premium and I knew for a fact that they were worth zero. I just didn't know when uh, they would zero out, but I knew that these securities that were rated triple B plus, and in fact, I knew some of the securities that had you know, even uh, higher ratings were, were gonna go to zero. And, and so there was an opportunity there uh, because the people who didn't realize that were paying par for assets that I knew would go to nothing. And, and so you just had to sell them or short them. Um, but I think right now, if you look at uh, the market, assets are also mispriced based on a perception that the Fed is going to be able to successfully return inflation to 2% and that it's going to do so without any major disruptions in the economy and that after inflation goes back to 2%, the Fed will be able to reduce rates uh, closer to the 0% or 1% that we've grown accustomed to, uh, and that the dollar is going to maintain its, its value. Um, and you know these assumptions are all wrong. Inflation is not coming down. Uh, the dollar is not going to maintain its value. Um, I- interest rates are ultimately headed a lot higher. The Fed will lose control of that. And, and so you need to recognize which assets will do well in a weak dollar, higher inflation environment where you have you know, an exodus out of dollar assets because those, that money has to go somewhere. So if I have assets in the United States and I'm, I'm selling, what am I doing with the money? Where's that money gonna go? And, and so you want to invest where the money's gonna go and you want to avoid where the money's gonna leave And you also have to recognize that a high inflation environment represents a significant transfer of wealth from creditors, I mean, to debtors. And and that's one of the reasons that the US government and other governments are always going to pursue inflationary policies because governments are the biggest debtors and the US government is the biggest debtor of them all. And so inflation wipes out significant uh, percentage of the real value of US debt. So you wanna be you know, in assets that will benefit from, uh, from that shift of wealth. But I also think as the dollar falls, it will fall particularly hard against a lot of the emerging market cur- currencies, not as much against the Euro or the pound or the yen, but a lot of these currencies that have not been doing quantitative easing, that have not had and never had 0% interest rates, um, that are doing a lot more saving and production, these uh, currencies are going to rise. And so will the values of investments denominated in those currencies and the standard of living of the people that live there will rise. And uh, there'll be a lot more uh, economic activity and legitimate economic growth. So what we're doing uh, with our clients at Your Pacific, with, with those uh, big picture uh, trends in mind is we're avoiding you know, the United States pretty much uh, we're overweighting uh, commodities uh, and emerging markets. And commodities would be 
uh, companies that operate in energy, oil and gas, in mining, whether it's industrial metals, you know, nickel, copper, or precious metals, uh, you know, gold and silver, agriculture companies, uh, you know, these are companies that will uh, do well in an inflationary environment. Also, the type of companies that we buy are companies with pricing power, companies that are selling goods and services that their customers need to buy. And they will buy them, even if the price goes up. They may buy a little bit less, but they will continue to buy. Um, and they will cut back on other things in order to afford uh, what, what you're selling. So you, you want to be in those companies. You don't want to be investing in companies uh, where the consumer can easily give up uh, the, the service or cut back on the service dramatically. Um, you don't want to be invested in companies that don't have earnings. Uh, those are the companies that you buy in a bubble when interest rates are zero and there's no cost of money. And therefore, you can place some high value on some expected you know, future rate of return. But in an inflationary environment where money is losing value and rates are higher, uh, 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 the prospect of future cash flows are greatly diminished. So you don't want to buy uh, the, you know, like the FANG stocks or these high-flying tech stocks. You want to own companies that are earning money right now and that are paying their shareholders good dividends right now. And I want the income, the revenues to not be in U.S. dollars. I don't want my dividends in U.S. dollars. If I expect the U.S. dollar to depreciate dramatically, I want my dividends in currencies that will do a better job of maintaining their value. And again, I want to own companies that can keep raising their prices so that they can raise my dividends so that I have more money to pay the higher prices that everybody is going to be uh, confronted with. And, you know, what a lot of people were doing during the bubble, uh, indexing, just buying whatever's going up, none of that stuff is going to work. I mean, what is going to work well in the foreseeable future is stock picking active management, not just passive indexing, because then you're buying all the overpriced crap. You've got you've to think, uh, you just can't follow the herd. And you know, you've got to be willing to go out on a limb and veer away from these indexes that are dominated by overpriced stocks. And in fact, if you look at the returns that we achieved for our clients last year, uh, they were excellent on a relative basis, not on an absolute basis. We didn't make much money last year, but we didn't lose any money either. You know, when we were fully invested. And in fact, my two core strategies, uh, my international value and my international dividend payers, we also have those available to Americans in mutual funds. And my dividend payer mutual fund in its category of 350 funds was number one uh, for 2022 in, in total return. And it, you know, it, I got an award from Lipper. I got an award from uh, Morningstar. I got written up as the top fund in U.S. News and World. In fact, they ranked the top 60 funds, and my my dividend payer fund was number one, and my value fund was number three. And those were the only two funds I had in the category, and I was one in three. Uh, Goldman Sachs somehow managed to get into the number two spot, uh, but they had a lot more funds. They they, they, had, they had more bites of the apple than than, than I did. Um, but I think I might, uh, you know, get be one and two, uh, you know, next year. But when 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 U.S. News and World looked at the the fund, 
it didn't just rank at number one for one year. It was number one over three years, number one over five years. But if you go back a couple of years ago, I was in last place, right? Those funds that are now in first place were in last place. How did I go from last to first? Well, the air started coming out of the bubble because I was thinking forward and I, I, I saw or knew what was going to happen. And so I positioned myself. And for years, uh, by avoiding a lot of the momentum, I was lagging behind my peers because I wasn't gambling with my customer money. Uh, but now, you know, the fruits of that are, 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 are being born because now I'm not experiencing the losses that everybody else is, is experiencing. And I think we're just on the cusp of this. I think we're going to see this big wave out of a momentum into value, out of uh, U.S. stocks into international, out of developed markets into emerging. And I think my investment strategy is just starting uh, to you know, to bear fruit, and I think that between now and the end of the decade, I expect you know not only substantial relative returns, but even more substantial absolute returns. Now, of course, you know I could be wrong, right? I mean, you know, but that's that's my that's my expectation, and I think that anybody who shares my outlook uh, should be a client of our firm because I think I have a good team that I've put together of portfolio managers uh, who are going to pick. The types of investments that are going to do well if I'm right on on, on the macro, and and I, I'm confident that I am. You know, I've got all my own money invested in this strategy too. This is the thing, of course, that um, we've we've been following this in the UK column, been looking at the the ability of the central bank, in this case the Bank of England, to predict the future, and it's it's been quite a funny uh, chart uh, that we've been able to show because <laughs> essentially when the inflation started off. They they said, well, it's it's going to inflation is going to peak in in the next quarter, and then it's going to go decline quite rapidly. Um, and in eighteen months, magically, it's going to be at two percent. And then <laughs> then the next quarter happened, and it shot straight through the next target. And they said, well, it's it's now going to peak in another three months, and then in eighteen months, it's going to be back at two percent, and it shot through that. And this happened quarter after quarter after quarter, and they were consistently wrong. And nobody seemed to point out the fact that they were completely hopeless at, at uh, predicting the economic future, uh, just like Paul Krugman. And, um, and that, that uh, why do we listen to them uh, seemed to be the question. Uh, so, Peter, uh, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Hope we can do this again in the not too distant. Um, and uh, hopefully we're not talking about war and we are talking about um, what the Fed's doing and um, perhaps, maybe, you never know, some reality might start to dawn, um, although I doubt it. But till then, Peter Schiff, thank you very much. Thank you.